When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Do I have a guest with me today? Uh, I'm Bruce Shapiro. I'm your host today for the uh, this episode of the New Books Network. Uh, and my guest is Dr. Jacqueline Braitman, who is a historian and an author. And today we're going to be talking about her wonderful, and very interesting uh, biography called She Damn Near Ran the Studio, The Extraordinary Lives of Ida R. Coverman. And this book was published as part of the Hollywood Legend series, Hollywood Legends series, from the University of Mississippi Press in 2022. So I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Braitman, and I would really love to know, you know, uh, when we were kids, this is, you know, giving away that you and I know each other well, but when we were kids, we haven't seen each other for a long time, we both went to Hubert Howe Bancroft Junior High School. Did you ever think in those days that you would follow in the namesake of the great historian that was named for our, that our school was named after? Never, ever occurred to me. Mm-hmm. And now that I've heard you say, Dr. Breitman, please call me Jackie, because that's how we know each other. That's right. So, um, but I will say we had a, a, a teacher, I don't know if you had her, but I had a teacher in history named Tanya Burnett. And she took me to UCLA one evening because she was still taking courses. And I think that was deeply embedded in me that someday I would end up at that same library at UCLA. And I think she was the one who did it, not Bancroft. No. So, uh, Jackie, you are um, a research scholar in the Women's History uh, Center at UCLA, where you were also a lecturer and uh, a research scholar. Can you tell us uh, how you managed to get started in history, a little of your background, and maybe what you did before you discovered uh, Ida Coverman? Well, I'm no longer affiliated with um, UCLA or the Center for the Study of Women. But yes, that was a part of my life when I was teaching at UCLA. I came to Ida Coverman through a circuitous route. I was doing my PhD dissertation at UCLA, and I was working on a biography of Catherine Phillips Edson, who was a progressive reformer in the early 20th century. And near the end, as I was finishing, um, uh, another scholar in political science named Joe Freeman sent me an article or sent me some reference to a woman named Ida Coverman. And there was a relationship with my subject, Catherine Phillips Edson, but it wasn't clear at the time. So I just sort of put it to the side. And um, then I wrote articles about women in California politics and the Democratic Party, liberal Democrats. And then I discovered Stanley Mosk, another liberal Democrat. And then through all of these Ida Coverman somehow kept seeping through. And when I, one day I finally decided I'm going to pursue this, but I wasn't going to pursue it without a contract, the book contract. And I introduced myself to um, a prolific author of, of uh, film history named Tony Slide. He loved this concept of Ida Coverman and he facilitated me getting a contract with University of Mississippi Press, and that's when I began in earnest, uh, five years, six years ago now, maybe seven years now. I had only done some research. I had reached reached out to 
some surviving, uh, and, you know, people that I could email with, but that was many years ago. But I was able to interview the last surviving relative that knew her before she passed away, her grandniece. And so all, even that was a few years before I started in earnest on the book. So she'd always been in the back of my mind. And just to sum it up, because I had already done women in politics for my research and knew that Ida Coverman had something to do with that, but everything about Ida Coverman that had been written had to do with her place in Hollywood at MGM, I was uniquely situated to see her in a larger context of California history, California political history, women's history, and long before she got to MGM, and then, of course, during her MGM years. So it just sort of all came together. That's great. That's great. Really interesting. Now, um, before we get to the to talking about the book itself, I have one, one more kind of interesting question that came up when, when you were talking. Um, she's a really different perspective on California history than Edson was and not 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 a not a Democrat and here a really different uh, perspective so um, how did that you know kind of affect you were you were you were you interested to find a, a, a different viewpoint or or what well I it was fascinating really now Catherine Phillips Edson was a Republican but she was a progressive Republican Ida Coverman was a conservative Republican, and the history of California politics before the Democrats kind of be, made a mark for themselves on the state, because it was largely a Republican state. But up until the 1930s, the Democrats hadn't really had much impact. It was a Republican state, but there was a contest between the conservative Republicans and the liberal progressive Republicans. And so one of the chapters is Long before people have been talking about finding the soul of the Republican Party now, I made that um, one of my chapter headings because these two women, Ida Coverman and Catherine Phillips Edson, represent the tension going on in California and other states, but most mostly California because we had a very strong progressive Republican stronghold on the state. And Coberman represents the reaction to that. So again, it fit in perfectly with what my previous research had done. But yes, gave me a very different perspective. Yes, really, uh, you really treat that for, for people who are going to read the book, and I hope many do. Uh, and she damn near ran the studio. You really give uh, quite a strong reflection of their competition in, in politics at that time. But what you said just now clears it up a little bit for me because I kept thinking, is she Republican or is she Democrat progressive? Because yes, this uh, contest between the progressives and the conservatives was really uh, important. So I want I want people to get a whole sense of what your book is about, but um, you, you divide her life up. You call it the extraordinary lives of Ida Coverman. And, uh, you divide her her story up between three different what you call iterations or or uh, incarnations of her life yeah and um she she just to give people a sense she was born when when ulysses s grant was president and she passed away when eisenhower was president that's a that's a long time. And it's interesting that our lives overlap just a, a couple of years with her life. So can you kind of uh, give us an overview of how you took that approach and, and maybe take us back to where she began uh, in Ohio? Well, I would say in terms of our, just to jump ahead to the point about how our lives overlap, I don't know if they do so much in terms of her life, but her legacy, clearly. And the fact that she was a local West Hollywood resident and lived on Laurel Avenue, where my elementary school was Laurel Avenue School. And then every part of the culture that we grew up with, Plummer Park, Hollywood Bowl, um, I, you know, this is what comes to the top of my head, um, aside from movies and all of that. I mean, this was part of our local culture. So yes, her life touched ours in, in many ways. 
Yeah. I was thinking about all those places and uh, they all, you know, put all kinds of pictures back in my mind when you, yeah. when I was reading yeah. it. Anyway, continue, continue. Yeah. So um, what was the question? I was asking, sorry. I was asking about how you, uh, you divided up her life. Oh, right. The incarnations. Okay. Yeah. And maybe take right. us back That's, to where you began. Right. The, well, the reason that I wrote it, divided her life up is because no one in her life, just like as a historian, the people interested in Hollywood didn't know anything about her life before MGM, and the people interested in Hollywood could care less about her political life. So I had a big challenge to write a book that would appeal to both people. But in her own life, the people in her own life didn't know anything about her previous life. All the MGM people didn't know that she had been involved in a scandal in Ohio or worked in New York. There was sort of a, a narrative that she didn't do anything to disturb. And that narrative stayed even with contemporary people writing about her, which was, oh, she met Ho Herbert Hoover in New York. And, you know, he got her to come out to California and, you know, work on his campaign. Well, that isn't what happened at all. So finding out who she was in her early life was hard because her last name was Brockway, Ida Ranu Brockway. And nobody really had a handle on that. And it wasn't until I started researching her last name, her maiden name, did I find her something about her life, which was this extraordinary scandal, one of the largest um, extortion uh, um, blackmail schemes to date. It was a national story for a year and a half. And um, she she ended up, well, it was basically the, the people that she knew, a woman friend that she knew was blackmailing one of the people at the treasury office and had a, a, a lover. It's hard to kind of encapsulate. I didn't think about trying to encapsulate that part of the story very briefly, but she was friends with people that I describe as passionate uh, um uh, but undisciplined individuals who just act on impulse, like shooting their lovers in the chest or trying to blackmail, you know, the person who knows about the affair or have, you know, these were just people who lived outside of the boundaries of what was, what is still even deemed appropriate. They were, but she herself was not necessarily involved in any criminal activity, but she was at the center of it. Yeah, it was something to do with the railroads. You you mentioned the the big big four railroad companies and and uh, and a bribery scandal and somehow somebody that she was close to was at the center of that. And then, right, she worked for the U.S. Customs Office in Cincinnati, and the big four had a a depot there, but they also had a treasurer, and so. Someone at the big four office was stealing money, but he, he ended up being arrested and he was saying he was only stealing money because the lover of his colleague was blackmailing him. And it, it, it's just, it went on as a convoluted story where Ida Koberman, who was friends with the woman who was the lover, who was blackmailing the man at the treasury of the big four, and her friend at the customs house was knew all about it. I mean, it just, it's really crazy. But, but sorry, because, No, I was just going to say, but because Ida Coverman knew this information and somehow the story came out that she was the one who notified officials, she was now a wanted woman. There was a warrant out for her arrest as a witness, not as a subject, but she left Cincinnati after talking to the district attorney, she left Cincinnati. Nobody knew where she was. There was a warrant out for her. She came back so that she would testify. And she, but she, the testimony turned out to be not what the district attorney even told the press it would be. You know, it would be sensational. It would be wild. So all of this was built up. But that what was sensational was the testimony of the woman who was blackmailing and, um, just the drama of her coming into the courtroom as a as a kind of disheveled and very frail woman who'd just been taken through the ringer through with the justice system and 
I mean, even though she was blackmailing, she was also a victim to all the, of the machinations of the men around her. So, so the main guy was just to, just to check his name. Is that is that the one called Warner? Yeah, Charles Warner. Charles Warner. He was the one who was stealing, embezzling the money from the treasury. And was his name uh, in those days? What what year was it? Do you remember exactly what year it was? It got started around 1909. And okay. then went through till the end of 2010, maybe 2011. And, and no. all, all of the people, not 2000, yeah, 1910. I'm sorry. Yeah, 1909 to 1911, around there. But I mean, all of the people around involved in this were tried. So was his name, uh, sorry, was his name Warner? Was that, uh, did people around the country know his name out of this uh, scandal? Oh, Warner? Yeah. Warner? Oh, yes, because this, this was Warner. Warren, or he, yeah. he, it was, this was in the press. Yeah. So everybody National knew that city. name. Yeah. And they knew Coleman. Um, I mean, I should say Brockway at that point. Because, you and know, they knew, yeah. In, yeah. The, in the movie, uh, in the MGM movie, the Broadway melody of 1929, the, the, the bad guy, and this is, it's, it's kind of a love story, but the bad guy, this, uh, this uh, kind of a rake, his name was Jacques Warner, and it never occurred to me that, gee, maybe they, you know, picked up on this guy's name and used it in the movie 10 years later. It's, it's possible because one of the close allies of Ida Coverman was Nellie Kelly, and there was a movie called Nellie Kelly with Judy Garland. So I, right. I don't know, yeah. you know, if. Yeah. Or, or was, I would even I'd even take it further because Ida Co Ida Brockway married Oscar Coverman, and it's kind of interesting that the Oscar is named Oscar, even though everyone credits the M Margaret Herrick of the light of the library. I made a case that it's very possible the name Oscar came, like oh from Ida Coverman. Like ah, what about Oscar? Who the, who knows? No, the, really the Academy Award statue. The Oscar, yeah, came and her name, her husband's name was Oscar. Yes, let, let, let's go there for a minute because that's that's another really interesting. I I I don't want to leave stuff too too much because the the scandal thing was really interesting. But her this is also very interesting about her life. Her husband's name was Oscar, and tell us about tell us about when did she marry him and what what happened to that relationship? Apparently, she knew this gentleman. Uh, I don't know how well, but there's some indication just from news clippings that they had known each other. But I don't know if it was only in Ohio or New, or New York. But at any rate, right after her testimony um, in the Cincinnati case of uh, Charles Warner, she disappears from any historical record. She is... And it turned out she married Oscar Coverman in 1910. And usually what happened in that period is women, her name by custom should have become Ida Brockway Coverman so that she could still have been identified by her maiden name. But she kept her middle name and dropped her maiden name. So she became Ida R, R, Ida Ranow Coverman. And no, Brockway was nowhere to be found. So that's particularly why this is the first incarnation that no other lives of hers know about this because she literally dropped her maiden name. Uh, like, for example, Catherine Phillips Edson. Phillips is her maiden name. She married Edson. So that was very typical. But that, that and, and that's why I think it, she. That must have made it very difficult for you to, to, to find all this out about her, not having that, that bit of information to start with. Right. No, it was it. Once I found Brockway, I mean, I knew Brockway was in there, but once I really started looking for Ida Brockway, Ida R. Brockway, that's when all of this. I mean, I had no idea about this scandal. I mean, it was it was actually amazing. It was being like a detective and being mm -hmm. like an investigator, and then finding that it went on and on and on, and there were so many layers. So, so come back to her husband now. She she went to New York, and then she. She dropped her, her, her maiden name, kept her middle name, married Oscar Coverman, and then what happened? Well, he goes off to uh, South America or Mexico, I forget, Col no, Colombia, 
somewhere where there's oil and mining and things like that. Um, and she, where she does appear in the newspapers, he's never there. It's never Mr. and Mrs. Coverman are going to the chateau at the in the Catskills or whatever. Um, it's always Ms. Coverman or Mrs. Coverman. And she is a, a little bit visible because she this is where she gets into helping to start the um the women's uh, swimming association uh, helps to encourage competitive swimming with women. So her name is in the press, but and, and there's a whole um, community of, of swimmers that are training now for the Olympics. Women women were not allowed to train uh, to compete in the Olympics, but through her, not just her, but many other women involved in promoting women's swimming, by 1920, women were able to to compete in the Olympics in swimming. So so from 1910 to 1920, you can see her activity involved in organizing swimming and promoting swimming, but Oscar's never around. And the Shelbourne Hotel in um, Brighton Beach or near Coney, I don't know where it is in New York, but anyway, that the Shelbourne Hotel is where in those early days, women were staying and swimming. To, to practice. So she was very involved in that community. But also now she, but now she's a middle-class married matron and has gained respectability and she's able to circulate among a new class of people than she did before she came to New York. I mean, she was, it's, it was a quite different milieu that she lived in. Right. And she brought that whole, that whole swimming enterprise kind of brought her to the West Coast. Right. She actually, I found near the end of my research that she actually had a byline in the LA Times where she was covering these swim meets, these extravaganza uh, swimming um, uh, events that like in Huntington Beach or in Long Beach called the Great, the Big Plunge and things like that. Or And when um, the Duke, I don't want to even try to say his Hawaiian name, but the Duke you know, she there was a one article that she wrote saying the Duke was going to appear. I mean, he was the king of surfing, and you know, she helped. You know, she was involved in that. So there was some publicity early on that in Los Angeles about her involvement with swimming, and that's why I make the leap that it's very possible that it's because of that that Esther Williams became the star that she did with these swimming extravaganzas. I don't have proof of it, but it's pretty convincing though. So a little question, a little side question. When I was reading that, I was thinking, I wonder if the whole female swimming enterprise, the whole idea that women would would start swimming uh, professionally and, and all that, if if something, in, yeah, competitively, if, that, if, if the Max Senate bathing beauties and all of that might've influenced this, this sort of coming out the permission for women to wear something more than woolens when they went in the ocean it's, it's possible i i don't know but um clearly there there clearly it meant a lot for women to be unbridled with these ter- you know these with these wool suits that weighed them down and sally kellerman was one of the, the australian swimmer which esther williams played in the movie *The Million Dollar Mermaid*, um, she was one of the women that were promoting, you know, let's change these bathing suits and get women to be what I what I say is more buoyant, uh, politically, uh, literally and figuratively. Yeah. Okay, so we got her to California. We're kind of on the cusp now of her second. Well, let me just okay. say, yeah. she's in New York for ten for ten years. Uh huh. And she is working at the uh, Woolworths building, and she's working for people involved in international um, trade and mining. Um, but she did not work for her. I just want to make it clear. She did not work for her Herbert Hoover. She might have met him, but this was not his gold fields of South Africa. It was a completely different company. Hello, we're back. So... Sorry about that. Everything recorded, so we're not having a problem. 
but I guess maybe uh, just the internet or something uh, stalled us. Anyway, let's get right back to it. We were talking about her. She was she had been working in an office in the Woolworth Tower, and you were talking about whether or not she had met Hoover at that point or not. So maybe just pick it up there. Well, I was what I was trying to say is that she did work with very high powered uh, men who were like Hoover engineers and uh, adventurous entrepreneur types involved in mining around the world. One in particular that she does mention as a credit uh, in a very brief biography that uh, from an article about her in, in the MGM News, or Studio Club News, was um, John Hammond, who was a big engineer, entrepreneur, very much like like Hoover. But there was there's there was no direct anything about her and Hoover at that point. But it's possible she might have met him. She doesn't really get involved with Hoover until she moves to California, and she she goes to California for the Trona Corporation, which is a subsidiary of the or of the company that she worked for in New York. Now they have a um, a, 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 a company in by the Searles Lake uh, in Trona, California, and she's there's an office in Los Angeles. But while there, she ends up meeting a local uh, Politico type named Ralph Arnold. And Ralph Arnold was also a, Stan a Stanford engineer, knew Herbert Hoover, um, knew uh, everybody in the industry, but truly believed that Herbert Hoover was presidential material. Because at that time, before the great crash of 29 that Hoover gets blamed for, you know, he was one of the most well-loved and well-respected Americans in the country and around the world for the work that he did during World War II for Belgian relief um, and for humanitarian purposes. And he was seen as this self-made millionaire. So he was a very well-respected man. And so many people wanted him to get involved in politics. So while she, while, Calif while Ida Coverman is living in Los Angeles, she ends up getting hired by Ralph Arnold to send out uh, a massive mailing to test the waters about a Hoover candidacy. And that was in 1920. And basically that was the beginning of their eight year um, saga, their eight year mission to get Herbert Hoover elected to the presidency. It took eight years. And just as an aside, getting back to the comparison between Ida Coverman and Catherine Phillips Edson, Herbert Hoover, nobody knew if he was a Democrat or Republican. I mean, the, both parties wanted him eventually to be on their presidential ticket. But it, when it was finally just decided, yeah, he's really a Republican, um, he represented the opposite of what California's uh, leading Politico figure um, governor, then Senator Hiram Johnson. Hiram Johnson and Catherine Edson represented the, the progressive uh, social welfare reformer types, and Hoover and Ida Coberman represent sort of the more conservative contrast to that, that were, that were seeking to gain power in California and then also as well nationally. So that, that both of these sort of symbols of the era in tension with each other play themselves out with Hoover versus Hiram Johnson and through these two women, Catherine Edson and Ida Coverman. So again, for eight years, she becomes, Ida Coverman becomes a political powerhouse in, in Los Angeles. And the broader story to that is that, that Southern California is becoming, is a burgeoning region. San Francisco had been the dominant city and the, the liberal forces and progressive forces in the Northern Bay Area. Southern California was welcoming more conservative Midwesterners. Uh, it was known as an anti-union uh, region. And so the Republican Party, knowing you know, that there were now 
scores of women voters, although in California, women could vote for president in 1911, but by 1920, the whole, all women could, most women. Um, uh, so Ida Koberman and her close allies, it was their mission to bring conservative Republican women into the party as opposed, I mean, let's say more conservative women into politics. And so along with electing Herbert Hoover, her, she and her colleagues basically created an infrastructure that the progressive ha progressives hadn't done quite as well, although they had done it, but they built an infrastructure of women in politics that lasted throughout the decades. Mm -hmm. And that was part of how she brought Los Angeles and Southern California up to political um, you know, power, basically. As the region grew, she was bringing women into the fold and helping to increase the political power of the region. And the region was growing because the movie business had moved out there. To, to, well, to... it was growing for lots of reasons, mm -hmm. but and yes, oil. one of the main industries at that time was becoming Hollywood. And so she also, uh, not only does she bring women into the Republican, conservative women into the fold, but women in general, were interested in the movie business all over the country early on. Organized club women were put, you know, putting their two cents in about what are good movies and you know how to how do we make sure movies are for social uplift and um, you know all the good things the media could do. And they were very involved. The General Federation of Women's Clubs was very involved in. Uh, you know, local theaters and local communities in there wanting to not, they didn't want to stifle or censor so much as uh, direct the way movies, the, the, uh, the subject of movies, the themes of movies would represent their values. Yeah, that's and, very interesting. You, you, uh, you touched on two things I want to ask you about. Uh, first, the rights of women and her, uh, her orientation towards prohibition. Now, how did how is it that the feminist or even the, the women of the day were somehow in favor of prohibition? She was in favor of prohibition, right? Well, I don't have anything directly about her, but I do know that she did attend at least one prohibition con uh, convention uh, because the assistant uh, U.S. attorney, uh, Mabel Walker, Mabel Walker Willibrand talks about how Ida Coverman, you know, is one of the good people and she supports prohibition. But I haven't found anything personally to, to support that. But the tie between uh, prohibition and women, the women's movement is two. Well, two things off the top of my head. One is it, it, it taught in um, organizational skills, uh, lobbying and, you know, political efforts and grassroots efforts and, uh, you know, street as opposed to formal lobbying, but, you know, protests and things like that. But also uh, the notion that, you know, alcohol was hurting families and hurting women and men were, you know, getting violent and children were suffering. So it it was like anti-slavery in the early, in the mid 19th century. Feminism grows out of different movements and it, they fuel each other. And so I, but I would not say prohibition was really a significant part of her life. Um, yeah. She also found herself in the, in the, in the political situation. She also, didn't she find herself dealing with yet another scandal uh, having to do with oil and, and uh, oil stock sales and things like that? Yeah. Right. Um, I had, I'd forgotten all about that one of that scandal or there's another scandal um, yeah, this, she was superficially, uh, involved in, and the reason I included that in the book, and I'll explain it in a second, is because when there isn't direct evidence from Coverman herself, and there really isn't, except for a handful of letters in the 1920s, um, a lot of it is, uh, by her associations that I can, I'm trying to show how she was well-connected in all of these events, she, even if she wasn't directly involved, because uh, the the um, the oil, before the big crash of '29 in 
Southern California, because of the oil industry, there were there were all kinds of uh, selling of stock. I'm trying to remember the Julian uh, Petroleum Company, even though the, the man Julian was no longer involved in it. Um, there were there was overselling of stock. People were giving up their savings, but also moguls like Louis B. Mayer and and uh, uh, Mendel Silberberg, people and lawyers, professionals. Everybody was investing in this, but the people who you know obviously didn't have the ability to take a loss like the you know elites did. A lot of people were really hurt because of the the uh, the um, uh, elevated. Uh, prices of the oil, the guarantee of quick winnings, you know, everybody was investing. And when the stock prices dropped, because they're just, it was so overinflated, it was like a precursor to the crash in a way. But why it's interesting to her is that she did get some stock bought by Ralph Arnold for her as in part maybe for payment for her work because they always had trouble. Once she began to work full time with him, she was always worrying about how she was going to get paid. But I, I it's around the time of this uh, stock implosion that she had stock, but I, I can't, I couldn't put the pieces together perfectly. But nevertheless, everyone she knew was involved in this uh, stock fiasco, really. Yeah. So she... She joined up there to uh, to elect Hoover, and eventually, after eight years, that was successful. And then, and then once that kind of, I, I guess you could say, the once the celebration of all that, and he became president before the uh, before the crash, then she had to kind of move along because her big work was 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 kind of finished. So how did she get hooked up with? Now this is how she moves into yet. Her third, her third incarnation. Right now, how did she get hooked up with Louis B. Mayer in this whole studio work? Well, Mayer apparently wanted to begin to get involved in local politics himself. Um, but what I found in like just a pencil drawing in a in the Ralph Arnold papers that uh, you know didn't make sense to me until later and. In, in my research, but there was a, a man named Rasty Wright. I don't know his real first name, and I don't know if that was a, a, a nickname, but Rasty Wright, W-R-I-G-H-T, he was asked by Coverman to bring in someone to run a projector during one of their political meetings, and he brought Louis B. Mayer. And that is the only thing that I can say in terms of how, how and that was like, I think, 19... 19- 24. I could be wrong on the date, but it was mid-decade. And then he got more and more involved in the party. But it seemed that Ida Coverman and Ralph Arnold would be eager to embrace Mayer because he had deep pockets and they were always short of money Uh um, and constantly fundraising and, you know, trying to get people to donate. So it was a kind of a mutual admiration society that whatever political connections Louis B. Mayer now could have through through Ida Coberman and whoever else he was, you know, networking with. Um, but it also it also brought the movies to the women's clubs and to the Republican women. And there it literally was a symbiotic symbiotic relationship because Mayer would speak before women's associations. And um, they were, you know, I mean it just would they were the audience and they were also the voters so it it worked for Coverman in both ways yes you one of the themes in your book is the connection you draw between the movie business and politics and it seems like Coverman was right in the well it's almost like she was the one that was on both sides there. She was able to help Louis V. Mayer. Some, something you mentioned just now, um, maybe is a good example of who he, who Louis B. Mayer would talk to is uh, when they were forming Central Casting, which was the union representing screen extras, not not the actors, but- Not the, a union, it, not, it know, wasn't it a wasn't union. union. Right, right. It was the group of people that, it became a union later. The Screen Extras Guild became a union later. But she was kind of in the beginning of the central casting. And 
he would come and talk. What, what was all that? How did all that work? Bringing back I, uh, Catherine Phillips Edson into the story, when the issue of extras became much more publicized, which the issue being that thousands upon thousands of young people and their parents or young people on their own, um, unaccompanied minors or teenagers or young adults, uh, they were flocking to Hollywood to become extras in all of the studios. Um, and there was no formal way to hire them. And when you when you think about this is a burgeoning industry, there's no methodical way for all of these movie studios to hire these thousands of people. I mean, when you're looking at some of these old movies with Ben-Hur and all the, you know, the thousands of extras. Um, so they, it was sort of a haphazard thing and there were no rules that it, it didn't come under uh, regular oversight by the state, which at that time, the state had very little oversight over labor relations, but there was some. Um, and then even if there there was a, a, an effort at unionizing later in the 30s, uh, certainly extras weren't part of that. And women were never really included in tra traditional unionizing efforts in that period. Um, so there had to be, there were salacious stories. There were, uh, you know, sexual exploitation. There was... Uh, terrible, terrible stories were coming out of Hollywood in terms of what the extras um, went through. Not just actresses and actors or the casting couch with directors, but extras were a particularly vulnerable group. So Catherine Phillips Edson and the State Industrial Welfare Commission, after hearing all these complaints, decided they're going to hold hearings with the extras and some of the uh, VIPs, the executives at the movie studios, and try to come up with a systematic way to hire extras as well as to make sure they're enforcing, you know, cleanliness standards and health standards and labor standards for working hours and um, overtime and minimum wage, things like that. So it was, it was a very complicated process. But but the studios didn't really want any kind of state regulation. They ended up getting it, but they decided on their own, we're gonna, many of the studios came together and created central casting, which still survives today as not a union so much, but as a facilitator of having extras hired and then having them sent out. And so while Catherine Phillips Edson was holding these hearings where Louis B. Mayer testified, uh, and where many extras testified, Beetson from MGM was trying to tell the state, well, we're starting this central casting and this will take care of many of the problems. So it became uh, a combination of the state as well as the industry itself coming in to regulate and oversee. And the complication of this new industry was like, well, what what is a full day? What if they're, uh, um, and do you charge, do you, do they get paid for coming for transportation? Do they get paid for putting on their costumes or if they have to come in close? Uh, you know, if they wonder if it's a period piece and there's more time with makeup and costumes as opposed to, you know, a contemporary piece. At what point is it overtime? At what point is it just their job to get there on time and show up? Or wonder if there's rain, a rainy weather uh, on, a, on, a, on a live shoot. I mean, all of these, and again, you're talking about thousands of extras a day being hired on different studios and diff different locations. So uh, it, it, the complexity of it was a challenge. And, and uh, that Catherine Phillips Edson had a relationship with Louis B. Mayer because of these hearings, uh, it, it just was sort of fascinating to kind of put all of these things together from my previous research. And no one had ever even read these transcripts of Louis B. Mayer testifying, where he's also, you know, he's he, he's amiable, but at some point when he feels like, well, you know, if you don't really, if we don't reach a compromise, you know, we'll just take business out of California. We don't need to be working at Cal, or, you know, we don't need to keep women because the Industrial Welfare Commission only had oversight of women and children, not men. Well, we don't need to hire women. We'll just hire men. I mean, there was this sort of threat always underneath that he could change at any time.
But a lot of what he said was really interesting. Like, what do, do you pay in the live theater? Do actors get paid for all that? I don't really know the answer to this. Do actors get paid for all the rehearsal time and then get paid for the theater? So Louis B. Mayer was making an analogy with extras and the real theater. At what point do we pay them before the actual production? So right. it was fascinating reading. So uh, yeah, it was fascinating reading about it in your book, which is why I brought it up. That's a, a thing that we, we don't often you know, read about, and uh, never before had I you know, read about that particular chapter. But while we're on this now, I want to try and get a little bit more picture of what she did in the studio, because there's a spot in your book where you say, oh, uh, there's your desk and go make your job or something like that. He, 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 had, he had said, so what really did she do? She was, for, for, sorry, before I, I, I let you on, she was something else, something else you wrote in there was that she was not alone in the business. I mean, there were women behind all the men who ran the studios? There were women who ran the men who ran the studios, or some some quote like that that you mentioned. What was really her job? I, just to go back to what you had said earlier, once Hoover gets elected, and there, you know, there's the inauguration, and the first night that Louis Louis B. Mayer and his family and Ida Coverman are having dinner and stay over at the White House. I mean, to me, that was a very significant moment, symbolic moment of how important this woman was, as well as to, you know, the relationship with Hoover and Mayer as well. But I mean, at that point, we don't, this would be March of uh, 1929, right? Because now we have inaugurals in January, but back then they were still in March. And um, it was, it was, what is she going to do? And Mayer had seen her operate in the local level in terms of, and in the election for Hoover. And he knew she was a smart cookie and she knew she had, he knew she had connections all over Southern California and in Sacramento and in Washington, DC. And there, there must've been some simpatico they felt with each other uh, because he basically said, you know, come, I, mean, I don't know if he said, come work for me, but, but, what she says is once he asked her, he said, you know, make your own job, do whatever you do. And that's what she did. She she became the the um, last person to see before anybody got in to see Louis B. Mayer. She was the gatekeeper and she literally wore many hats. She, uh, you know, she was an administrator. She was a facilitator. She was a, a go-between between him, you know, and dealing with his personality, uh, you know, moods and dealing with the personalities and the egos in the studio. Uh, but, but the most, um, the most unusual ev evolution of her life at this point was that she became a talent scout. So not only was she a political powerhouse, and, and a key administrator at the studio, she actually brought in a, you know, a busload or more of talent that helped create the golden era of MGM and Hollywood in general. And she became, so that was, she became, some, she became something of a, a mother to a lot of the younger stars. And, and one of those people you write about is Judy Garland. Maybe you can just tell us a little bit about how that got going and, and how it ended up, because that's kind of sad. Well, there have been scores of books written about Judy Garland and the interest in her life, you know, has not dimmed in all these years. But less uh, known is the relationship with Ida Coverman, even though Ida Coverman is mentioned in most of these books. And she's mostly mentioned in that she's the one who really persevered to get Judy Garland auditioned and hired at the studio because there was a lag time between the first audition and this and the last one. There were two or three auditions, um, and it was it was her becoming totally enchanted with Judy Garland's voice. And Joseph Mankiewicz apparently went with Ida Coverman when she first heard Judy Garland sing. So he's involved in helping facilitate this as well. Um, 
but at any rate, the, the story is that it was her perseverance that finally got Mayer to listen and told her to hire her and do whatever she wanted. Um, so, yes, I think she be, uh, she became a uh, mother figure, surrogate mother figure. Even though Judy Garland's mother was around, she was a kind of volatile, you know, overbearing woman. So Ida Coverman, I, I think Ida Coverman saw her as sort of her surrogate child more than Judy saw her as a surrogate mother. Um, and it's by by everything I've been able to glean, it was a very close relationship, a nurturing relationship. And when Judy was having trouble with her diet and and uh, her, her mood started to change, that Ida Coverman was, well, she was torn, really. She was the employee of Louis B. Mayer. She had an obligation to him, but she was also the mentor um, of Judy Garland. And she was a human being who felt for this young protege, this brilliant star uh, or, or soon to be star. Um, so she had a balance her, her, uh, her, what she would do basically, how far she would go to protect Judy and yet help forward her career on behalf of the studio. So there was a lot, I'm sure there was a lot of inner tension with Ida Coverman, but for many years, it was a very close relationship. But as Judy Garland matured, aside from all the stuff that people have talked about for years, the troubles she had, emotional troubles, the diet pills and the weight and all of that. She was also turning into a liberal Democrat. And Ida Coverman was a conservative Republican who had conservative Republican actors and actresses surrounding her. And I believe part of the tension was as Judy Garland grew to maturity, and actually took during the HUAC hearings, you know, the House Un-American Activities Committee hearings, and, and many of the Hollywood liberals were very vocal about being opposed to those hearings, as was Judy Garland. I believe it was really a split, not just because Judy Garland was coming of age and maturing and re re rebelling against anybody who had helped her or hindered her. It, I believe there was a political schism as well. And and that Ida Coverman's politics was were, was no longer uh, something Judy Garland could overlook or embrace. Not that she ever would have embraced him, maybe, but she couldn't ignore it any longer because, again, during the 50s, the late 40s and the early 50s, this is where, you know, the, there's another Red Scare in Hollywood, basically, even before McCarthy. So... Uh, but certainly it gets going with McCarthy. So I, I think there, I think what has not been talked about is this political split because just about every relationship Ida Coverman had in Hollywood and at the studio was politically aligned as well as uh, in, in, with the Christian science faith. I don't know if Ida Coverman converted people, but it was pretty clear that the network that she ran in helped to nurture both science of mind and Christian science, as well as conservative politics. And, and that those went together, and Judy Garland did not fit in this mold. Yeah, so so I think that... You touched on something that's very interesting. Uh, you, besides the uh, House and American Activities Committees and those hearings and all of that, but the moral, the moral issues. I remember you talk about, or you wrote about, and I can't remember which actress it was, but it was a very... A kind of a scene filled with innuendo, and they she ran in to talk to to uh, Louis B. Mayer and said, "You got to watch the rushes and put a stop to this." I think it was uh, maybe the pirate, or what was the name of the film? Do you remember the story? Yeah, yeah, the pirate, which I absolutely love. Uh -huh. It it is such a campy, over overacted hyper movie. I mean, first, I just have to say, first of all, Gene Kelly never looked better in tights. He was, I mean, he, he always wore these pants, these baggy pants. Here he's wearing tights and boots like a pirate. He's gorgeous. And Judy Garland is hysterical as this highly emotional, um, uh, gregarious young woman who's, you know, infatuated with him. But the whole thing is camp. 
very mm -hmm. camp. And so anybody who disliked that movie was taking it too seriously. But apparently there was a scene of some very erotic kind of dancing with her, uh, Judy Garland and Jean Harlow. And um, the story is that Ida Coverman ran to Louis B. Mayer, said, you've got to see these, these rushes, and that they had them burned. And they were never, that scene was taken out of the movie. But you could certainly see that it, it, it could be a true story because it, there was a lot of heightened sexuality on both of their parts, but it was exaggerated camp. It wasn't erotic, uh, erotic, uh, pornographic in any way. It was just really funny, you know. You know, it's interesting. I mean, the reason I find that interesting is because it showed, uh, gave the reader a sense that Coverman had an impact with Louis B. Mayer on the moral direction of what was happening in the content of the movies. So not only did she, you know, talent scout people, but she also had an impact on the content, you know, and how we felt about it. And then I realized that as I was reading it, she was quite um, uh, ant an anti-sex education uh, uh, spokesperson. She didn't believe in school, sex in the schools, right? Sex, people should learn sex at home. And yet, it, and, and, her position on uh, HUAC was to the right, you know, was like she was kind of in favor of those hearings and all of that. And she was with a lot of people like George Murphy, uh, who was, a, a, a we would say today, a right wing um, uh, politico. So so she, would you say well, would say it back then as well? You would say it back then as well. Oh, oh yeah, that he that. That was very evident back then. Yeah. So would you say, I mean, the way we look at it now, yeah. looking back at those days, would you say she was kind of on the wrong side of history or how would you frame it? That that reminds me of the notion, was she a feminist or not? Good, I want and to hear I, about I, that. Yeah, yeah I, I, I believe she was a feminist. I have no, uh, I found no evidence of her articulating anything like that, one way or the other. I don't know if she was for the Equal Rights Amendment, but not all women were for the Equal Rights Amendment. That start, It started in 1923. And um, it would be a perfect example where someone, again, to compare the two women. Catherine Phillips Edson was a progressive reformer who did not want the ERA because all of the well, uh, uh, labor laws for women and children that had been passed during the progressive era would have been thrown out if they were not allowed to give special treatment to women and children, if it all had to apply equally, because men didn't have these rights at that time. Um, so, but many women who were professional women wanted the Equal Rights Amendment because they weren't salaried workers and they, they wanted to promote uh, careers for women that weren't minimum wage. So they they didn't really care about social welfare legislation, but they wanted women to be seen as individuals able to earn money in their own right, who could live their own life. So in that sense, I think she was as much of a feminist as say Catherine Phillips Edson was, but she was a she was more of the conservative kind of feminist. But there were a lot of what I think has been hidden from all all of women's history, at least up until I was really reading women's history, there were a lot of professional women at that time that formed their own, or the Business and Professional Women's Association had national affiliation, local and state affiliation. And there were lots of women who were feminists, but they weren't social welfare reformer, progressive type feminists. And so that's why I think in, in in that sense, yes, Ida Coburn was a feminist, but was she on the wrong side of history generally in terms of her politics, in terms of her uh, activism? I would say yes. I think she was, in terms of my values and my growing up and my learned uh, scholarly work, uh, I would say yes. But she, like some of the people that are most abhorrent to us even today, she tapped into something that was very much a part of America then. And now this, this uh, sense of individualism, this sense of uh, um, 
not being, not having to like deregulation, not having big government, anti-New Deal, all of these things, these similar ideas are embodied in much of the politics we see today. And and so they, again, these two women uh, exemplify this tension between what is the role of government? Mm. What is the role of a society to care for others? It is a tension that we continually live with. And so Coverman provides another side, but again, only by association. She never quite articulated in a way that scholars can find so far, but by her associations, people who promoted right-to-work states were anti-union. She, you know, was set at the head table of people who spoke this way. She was cited in the HUAC hearings as one of the good people, which were the conservative types who were opposed to the liberals in Hollywood. So the the like uh, Mabel Walker Willebrand and Hedda Hopper, I mean, these were conservative women politically, but maybe socially they were feminists, say. They were professional women who believed in the rights for women, but they weren't going to advocate for new uh, later what would be New Deal policies, say, 20th century policies. Um, Jackie, the, uh, your book touches on so many important topics, uh, and not just of Coberman herself, but what you mentioned a minute, of, a couple minutes ago, science of the mind and faith and morality and politics. And you mentioned lots of people, not just the movie stars, but uh, movie stars who became political figures or political figures who were portrayed in the movies. And she had her, her, her hand in so many pies that, and you cover them uh, so, uh, it's hard, it's hard to be thorough, but you cover right. them from her, her point of view that it really gives a person who reads this book uh, a real reflection. It made me kind of reflect on all these people that I knew and now through the book from, I get a different orientation, a, a different picture of them. And I kind of got a sense when I was reading it that that you probably did too. Well, for me personally, it was eye-opening all the way around. Um, this was a whole new world for me um, in terms of my research and previous scholarship. So uh, I have to say that uh, Stephen Ross, a historian at USC, he had written a book years earlier called um, Hollywood Left and Right. And he did have a chapter on Louis B. Mayer and Ida Coverman. He had the most thorough discussion of Ida Coberman and Louis B. Mayer that anybody had had uh, to that time. And I believe, and I say, I do say it somewhere in my book that I think Ida Coberman, what, what, he what he's arguing is that Holly, Hollywood wasn't just the liberal bastion that everybody thinks it was, that there were a lot of conservatives and then he does biographies to support his point. But what I try to show is that in the marriage of politics and Hollywood, it was Ida Coberman as the matchmaker. I, we have like a minute left on this yeah. uh, oh, session. Uh, yes, and I mean you're you're absolutely correct. I tried. I made it encyclopedic because no one had ever done it before. I wanted to throw everything in there. Yeah. yeah. Well, you you mentioned everybody like Jan Masaryk, uh, who people don't don't even the first. Uh, president of Czechoslovakia. You mentioned uh, the relationship between George Murphy and Chiang Kai-shek. You, you, you mentioned Ken Curtis. She found Ken Curtis, I think, as a singer. And I only knew Ken Curtis, you know, he was a Festus, that's it. And I still see his face on commercials on, on MeTV. He, there's Festus, yeah. Andy, Andy Williams, you know. So I was trying to say uh, that your book is so filled with references to so many people and so many interesting topics that we didn't get a chance to even touch on today. One of them being, as I think I mentioned to you, the Moral Rearmament Association. Is that what it was? Moral Rearmament Association? It was very interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Moral Rearmament Movement, but... Very, uh, very interesting topic that uh, touched on the whole moral morality issues. And I think people will find uh, all of those things, like you mentioned, science of mind, very interesting. And uh, again, I just want to say thank you for 
joining this New Books Network uh, interview about this wonderful book. And uh, just for, for the audience to um, let them know again, uh, the book is called She Damn Near Ran the Studio, The Extraordinary Lives of Ida R. Coverman by Jacqueline Braitman, published by Mississippi Press in 2020. And it's a very well-researched. It's loaded with notes. It's got a great bibliography. So I know people interested in history, whether it's political history, the women's history, or Hollywood history, will find this a very interesting read. So thank you very much for this great book. Well, thank you so much for reading it and wanting to talk about it. And thank you. Just thank you so much, old friend. I really appreciate it.